Namaste and in la catch and welcome to this edition of One World in a New World. I'm your host Zen Benefield and as always I'm going to highlight what namaste and in la catch means and that is namaste comes from the Sanskrit spoken it's called Brahmi and it means the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. And also from the other side of the world, in la catch, which is a Mayan phrase, means I am another you. So imagine the perspective shift, maybe even a paradigm shift that we could have just by considering that notion in our daily lives. Pretty cool, huh? Well, thanks for tuning in. This week's guest is Dr. Eric, uh, and I forgot to ask him how to pronounce his last name. So I'll make a stab at it. Um, Zabigolsky? Very good. A plus. Uh. Oh, cool. Uh, well, mom taught me a lot about enunciation. She was an English and lit teacher in junior high. So I, I got pummeled with, uh, this is how you pronounce that, right? So it's always important to pronounce things correctly. So uh, Eric is an author, strategist, coach, um, senior consultant at Avian, and he's got a PhD in executive leadership, human and organizational learning from George Washington University, and he's had a host of really interesting posts, if you will, um, including the senior technical consultant at, at, for Avian and uh, previously with Vector Systems Corporations. Um, he's been a consult organizational cult consultant in DC for uh, business research consulting. He's a board member of the World Institute for Active Learning, which that's a really cool name just in, in itself. Uh, and he's author of The Rise of the Ambidextrous Organization. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about some of the point, the, the highlighted points of, of his book as well. Very interesting man. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Eric, thanks for being here. Thank you for the invitation, Zen, and namaste and in la catch to you as well. I, I love those phrases. I think I might um, steal them and use them in the future. Yeah, don't steal them, just embrace them. You okay. Know, everything, all the, from my experience, and, and this is going to sound maybe a little wacky, the thoughtmosphere contains everything for free. We just have to ask the right questions and be in the right place to receive it and have fun right um right and, and you know that's kind of what, where it goes or at least for me anyway after in my years of progression so speaking of years of progression um when you began this quest for understanding which your book really reveals you're looking at it very deeply in the human dynamic and how it works with each other both personally and professionally in organizations how did that impetus you know arrive in in your mind i think that uh they say every everyone has at least one book inside of them so i think that um uh, this book is really written from my personal experiences and perspective and trying to find the right balance in life um in everything we do in organizational life and private life. I use the analogy at least once in the book about 
surfing and surfing the perfect wave and finding that balance and how part of that is you, part of that is the universe, part of that is the context of the environment you're in and, and mindfulness. And you really can do it right. You really can surf that perfect wave um, every day throughout your life and help others uh, if you find the right formula and yeah. you know execute that formula. And that's the important thing is execution. Now, in the process of writing the book, I'm sure, because I've written several myself, and, and there's a catharsis that happens in the comparison. Uh, maybe it's not a comparison. Maybe it's just the as you're writing the observation of previous events that affected your current knowledge and, and how it developed. Um, what kinds of shifts did you have happen from the process and how did you notice the previous things that you thought about transforming into the knowledge base that you use today? Great question. I think that what, I think the catalyst that brought this book out was probably a 20 year career in the military uh, as a, a very technical person in very technical fields. Mostly. And that was in the Air Force, by the way. That was another thing I, I wanted to mention in the, the introduction, that, that you are an uh, uh, Air Force veteran. Uh, yeah, thank you. I was an Air Force veteran. I was a sergeant. And I started out as, a, um, as an avionics technician working on aircraft. And then I became a flight engineer, which is a, a flying crew position. And I had... Um, many exciting adventures and, and uh, uh, several different aircraft that I flew on as a flight engineer. But during that, I think the catalyst for the book was as I started to approach retirement, I reflected back on my career um, and I reflected back on the skills that I learned and learned to do well and um, the type of person that I was and I felt as if um, often I felt like a right-brain person in a left-brain world. <laughs> I was always... You know, it's funny it's that, that you mentioned that because one of the, the folks that really meant a lot to me in his reading and writing and listening to him talk about things is Tom Campbell. Mm. And he talks about his book being... Um, an explanation of the right brain to left brain thinkers. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to write that name down. So I, so, you know, at times in my career that served me very well and it allowed me to excel and, and to help others and to help my organization that I happen to be part of. And at other times it made me feel like an imposter and it was frustrating at times. Um, Could you I explain that a little bit more about what kind of imposter is it that you couldn't be authentic in the process? Exactly. Okay. I had to, I had to conceal my authenticity or my contributions and my desire to, uh, my desire for inclusiveness and to be part of a high performing team wasn't understood or appreciated 
because of that because of that right brain bent that I had, I have a theory. I think that <clears throat> even though people are not uh, completely left brained or completely right brain thinking, I think that people have a preferable homeroom that they like to default to. Uh, maybe I would they agree go. With that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, maybe they go there out of comfort or habit. Maybe they go there out of preference or uh, they retreat to there because they know that environment. But I think that it's comfortable. It's comfortable and people use it as a jumping off point. And, and now they probably use it to frame the world that they move through, either that left brain or right brain disposition. And they're probably uh, proficient in that hemisphere, in that side or those areas. So, um, you know, in my book, I start off by talking about this thing called organizational ambidexterity. And that term was coined in the 1970s by a gentleman named Duncan. And Duncan talked about it in terms of switching rules, switching between exploitation, and that's a very loaded word, but what I mean by exploitation in this context is doing what you do well, exploiting the marketplace for profit, um, and also exploration, uh, discovering new things, new radical learning, and then folding that into your toolbox and having another tool in your toolbox to okay. To exploit or profit, you know, make uh, uh, profit from for market share in the marketplace, sure. doing whatever you're doing. So, the interesting thing about this ambidexterity, exploiting and exploring uh, the marketplace for new innovation and profit, is that 40 years of research on the subject says that exploitation drives out exploration. And what that means is that once you learn to do something well, we have a tendency to want to lather, rinse, and repeat on those processes. And we stop taking in new things. Yeah, I, I can completely relate to that in early studies that I had about job development and, and professional development. You know, it was stated that if you're in a job and you're in it for a year and then you're doing the same thing for multiple years where you're just repeating one year of education experience multiple times. You're not really growing in that process. And what I hear you saying in, in the exploitative and, and the explorative side of things, they're, they're both left, the exploitive is left brain because there's consistent strategy and thinking and, and very defined order. In yeah, fine, yeah, fine, fine grain, yeah. Zooming, zooming the lens in detail. Absolutely, and then with the right brain, there's this emerging comfortability with the unknown and mm -hmm. the, the insights and the spontaneous thoughts that come up and, and related to the left brain activity, but yet oftentimes ignored. So part of what I, and this is my own theory at this point, is that we've got the two hemispheres. We've also got the pineal and the corpus callosum that we, uh, pineals have a lot of, of concerted work as far as understanding and development and, and its use according to 
some of the more esoteric philosophies. And yet the Corpus Colossum really isn't addressed because that's the translational, transactional place in the brain that gets both hemispheres working together. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think of the Corpus Colossum um, as a as an electrical wiring harness that kind of it kind of fits on top of the brain and it connects all the different compartments to one another. And there's an interesting uh, Stanford lecture with, um, I forgot the professor's name now, he's a biologist. Mm -hmm. And he says something very interesting in one particular lecture. He says that um, the, now talking about the difference between genders, uh, male and female in, in this case, and the corpus callosum. He says that um, the corpus callosum on, on, in females generally um, is very large, very wide. Let's say it's like, a, like an eight lane superhighway. Hmm. And the corpus callosum in males generally is like a two lane road. Um, that's, that's fascinating. Says, yeah, that says something very interesting. And, and what it says is that the superpower that many uh, women have is that they can pull information from the different compartments within the brain that hold different bits of information. They can pull them together much quicker and make a disparate picture of something um, makes sense. They can see the 10,000 foot landscape view a lot easier than men can. Right. Yeah. So, you know, if the superpower with men is focus and they can um, dedicate uninterrupted focus in one particular area, one particular compartment, because they're not getting data in as fast, through the corpus callosum from these other compartments. Um, then the superpower for women is that they can see that 10,000 foot landscape view and pull in disparate pieces to make new things. Now, what um, Robert Sapolsky is the name of the professor, the biologist, he says, who has the smallest corpus callosum of all? Um, who has the most narrow pathways? They're like uh, deer paths compared to mm -hmm. a two-lane road or an eight-lane superhighway. It's people that have that are high-functioning autistics that have Asperger's. Now that makes sense, actually. So when you think about, they say they think that Albert Einstein had um, had uh, Asperger's. He could concentrate and dwell and think uh, very focused and very, very narrowly for long periods of time without interruption. Well, um, imagine the, the kinds of, you know, days and weeks and months that it took just to work on the equations. That's a tremendous amount of focused attention. Yes. And for years he thought yeah. about he thought about relativity for years um, and very focused attention. So, you know, 
what am I saying here? I'm saying that this is really a great argument for diversity, for inclusion, mm -hmm. and for um, for cognitive diversity and people who have those kinds of brains that are very good at narrow focus and those people who have those divergent kinds of brains that are very good at taking it all in. Right. Every, everyone is needed. Everyone is needed for that for that exploitation, um, you know, that um, uh, doing very well what you've what you've learned to do and also exploring opening the aperture right and uh, learning new things now i kind of termed that and i've it sounds on the fringe too because i, I term it as um, seeking and finding your perfected form fit and function in the world mm. i have a sense that genetically speaking not only are, are women superior based on the eight lane superhighway right um yeah which is one of the things that uh, a good friend of mine michael zamoro um had illustrated uh, to me some years ago I, it was actually the only time i was able to capture him on video and this was the guy we spoke earlier about him he helped launch the waterbed industry back in the 60s and was written up in time magazine and had a full spread in life uh, magazine the summer of 72 what he had said though in this short video clip was that women have genetic superiority and, and as soon as guys recognize that it might give us the opportunity to travel to our friendly stars and that's how he put it um and yet there's this in and especially now i, I believe that there's the masculine and, and feminine it's not just a belief there, there are two sides of the coin right that are learning how to dance well together and even in the uh, display of personalities and character of both genders some have more mass you know some women have more masculine some men have more feminine and so there's this amalgamation taking place in humanity that is ripe for um exploiting right yeah and and you know they're there you have the, um, there you have that balance again. That that question of surfing the perfect wave and finding the right balance the, between masculine and, and feminine, between um, uh, highly focused and and widely focused, between uh, right now and um, tomorrow. Right, and and it vacillates back and forth between uh, precision and ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a tol and a tolerance for those things. There, there's something called and a must-have for that tolerance. Otherwise, you drive yourself nuts. You, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you drive yourself nuts, and you drive yourself down one of those alleyways. The the alleyway that says that is very judgmental and says, "I only these are the only things that matter." I only think in terms of this and you get those blinders on again. Right. Um, the there's something in organizational, something in organizations called ATDT, attitude toward divergent thinking. And depending on your organization's attitude toward divergent thinking. The genetic superiority of women at this time and how those mindsets and, and how we're swirling in this amalgamation of masculine and feminine energy looking for 
union. Right. Okay. So let's pick it up from there. How do you see that evolutionary path towards union or even possibly reunion taking place? I like the way you put that, Zen. I like the idea of reunion. And I think that once that reunion happens, that we can really start to move forward in revolutionary ways uh, as a species, as a, as a planet. Um, you know, everything, if you want to talk physics um, and science. Yeah, let's do that. Everything equates down to energy and vibration. So, so how are how are you utilizing your energy? How are you expending that vibration? Um, is it be is it being used productively, um, or is it being wasted? Are you know are we uh, putting up walls, spending fearful days defending ourselves, or are we? Uh, free to use our higher cognitive thinking and um, our evolutionary gifts, our evolving gifts that we have cognitively in um, inclusive and combined ways to move forward. If we're, if you're stacking sandbags around your cubicle at work, then you're, it's clear where your energy is going every day. It's going to defend yourself and, and protect yourself because you don't have psychological safety at work. That's just one example. Mm -hmm. the, the, so if we, yeah, so if we can get together, um, understand one another, uh, connect at a basic human level, then we can start moving forward as a species and uh, take better care of this spaceship that we're all spinning around on and everything that inhabits it. Precisely. And conversely, we've allowed ourselves, you know, our population density is, has gotten greater and yet we have more separation between people. You know, mm -hmm. I live in a community, it, it's a really nice community, but we've got walls around every yard that we can't see our neighbors. I, you know, and, and you may have the same situation growing up. My community had few fences, let alone walls, and everybody knew each other. We, you know, the whole neighborhood knew each other. We'd play together, we'd laugh together. Then, yeah, there wasn't, you know, it wasn't such a, a thing to where we'd all come together and have a, a neighborhood picnic or something like that, right? Which, and some neighborhoods still do. Yet there was this transition over time. And especially, I came from a very small community. Now I'm, I'm living in the Phoenix metro area. And the distinction between the two is phenomenal. And now we're at this place where, okay, now um, cosmologically and even in the terms of physics and, and vibrationally, if we're going to learn how to work together, then we have to be more open to each other. We have to learn to know more about each other and be accepting of the diversity and skin color and gender preference and all of those kinds of things that are keeping us 
apart, right? Mm -hmm. I say mm -hmm. in one of my, I did a show, uh, actually a second show after the, the initial One World, it was called Who? And in the introduction, I talk about, you know, if you, we've got to stand for something or we'll fall for anything. Mm -hmm. and right. right. Right now, today, that's a huge factor in what we're facing globally with this, whatever it is that I'll call it a transcendent event because I think that's the core of the possibility in it um, and the transition from this self-centeredness to maybe not other centeredness but at least the inclusion of the other and, and wanting to know more about what kind of dictionary they're speaking from right right bridge those worlds and, and I think in uh, or at least I have a sense that once those conversations begin to happen that comfortability with ambiguity increases mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you even talk about sense making in your book right that's how right. that happens yeah and Carl Weick um, Carl Weick says something that I love in his book on sense making he says um how do I know what I think until I see what I've said? Absolutely. Now, this brings up the multiple aspects of our simultaneous attention, right? I see things kind of in reference to the perfected form, fit, and function I mentioned earlier. That happens by how we focus our attention, intention, and interaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I heard you talk about that in the um, Levy interview. It, it, it's consistent, you know, these are things that I think are, are obvious and yet aren't spoken or, or talked about um, enough, right? But in that process, we are able to move beyond that ambiguity and in the seeking of it, the questions that we ask uh, definitely bring us closer together. It's like we have that process of, of uh, understanding there's no ego without we go. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. So, questions are questions are very powerful, and that's what action learning is all about. So I'm a uh, certified coach at the World Institute for Action Learning, Mm -hmm. And I'm also on the board of directors and it's a, it's a powerful tool that's used worldwide and it's all focused on questions. Questions have a very disarming nature. Uh, they show respect. They show inclusiveness. I want to know what you think. I want to know how you feel. Um, and they also help us slow down a little bit with that exploitation. They help us um, not um, rush to judgment, which we so often do just arbitrarily out of anxiety. We want to figure things out. We want to know how our day is going to go. We want to know if this person is a threat or, or what's behind that corner or what's going to happen next. And we can't lay out those maps about life right. and the world and where we go and 
question. And one of the big things about sense making now, that, that, as I understand it, is the notion that we have to slow down in order to speed up. Hmm. That's something that I've been I've said for years, and it doesn't it doesn't initially make intuitive sense. But if we want to increase our performance and our productivity, we have to slow down. That's what the slowing down is about. And questions lead questions don't have to lead to immediate answers they the magic is when they lead to better and better questions absolutely and, and there's a paradox in that truth of, of slowing down to speed up just as there's paradox in every you know pearl of truth right it just depends yeah. on whether you're using linear thinking or spherical thinking mm -hmm. yeah albert einstein said if he had an hour to make a decision he would spend 59 minutes thinking of the question. Yeah. Now, what if, what do you think, or what have you noticed in your work? Because this is obviously something that you've included and applied at least in some areas and, and with organizations and had the ability to have that catbird seat, right? <laughs> of of uh, observation. How, does that work? Yeah. How do we, I care about where the rubber meets the road and most people do, you know, the practical application of the, of the, of the amazing things that we learn and that are shown to us by the universe. Um, I think one way that it works, one thing that I've come up with is um, the idea of suspending judgment until a decision has to be made. Keep the aperture open until you have to make a decision about something. Um, if you're going into a business meeting on a Monday morning, um, it would be nice if you could lay everything out in a nice package with a bow on top on a Friday afternoon. Uh, but, but why do that? Do you need to do that? Can you still have a good weekend and keep that, keep that open? Um, it's that success is when preparation meets opportunity kind of thing. The opportunity is not going to come until Monday. Um, you, you know, keep the door cracked open. Just Hit a the little pause bit. button. Let it Hit relax and percolate for a while, right? Yeah, you're an adult. We're adults. Keep the, um, have a little intestinal fortitude and courage and realize that you are not your brain. You're the owner of your brain. Tell your brain to settle down, calm down. We're going to, we're going to do, move the ball as far as we can on Friday afternoon. We're going to keep the door cracked open on anything that might be, anything that might happen, anyone that might rush in at 7.59 that, that spins your perspective. We're going to keep that open for possibilities of what might be. Uh, so suspend judgment until a decision has to be made. That's one, I think, core thing I've learned. Um, and it's hard to do. I can yeah. sit here, I can sit here and tell you to do that and then I'll make another, I'll do the exact opposite because I'm anxious and I want to well, get yeah, this settled. And, and therein is the crux of the matter, the anxiety, right? Yeah. The anxiety, energy, energy That's... that is, yeah. So, so in that case, cognitively, 
we're getting pulled around by our brain and and some people don't even know it their entire lives i like to think of your brain as a as a faithful dog um you need to love it you need to feed it you need to brush it you need to let it off the leash to run mm -hmm. sometimes um you need to keep it out of your neighbor's garbage don't let it get in fights with skunks um you know take care of take care of your brain keep it on a leash take care of it call it to um help you when you need it yeah. at least but don't let it don't let it run your life right and above and beyond that recognize and especially now with the studies of consciousness and, and quantum theory and, and all these kinds of things we realize that we're not just our brain that's the tool and that they're really right. just and i'm going to use the term one mind that we have access to now that one mind is differentiated into all kinds of individuated um perfected form fit and functions right yeah that that's part of that universal tapestry if you will and yet the in that one mind there is one energy and it is self-aligning in that thoughtmosphere of the one mind now in our inherent thoughtmosphere because of the physicality we've been structured in the bipolar notions right yeah we love by we love good evil those kinds of polarity and right and so picking a side now how do you feel about the the prospects of there really just being one energy and it's our choice of what direction we go with that which is our brain function not necessarily the mind that we're connected to in the larger scope that we actually it's the individuated choice that we have through our cognitive activity in the physical brain i think if i understand you right i think there is one energy i think there is a river of consciousness that we can tap into that we are attuned to and if we can clear enough clutter out of the way we can we can see that and ride There's a lot of driftwood and a lot of driftwood and we can ride that river um so i think that um hmm, there were several thoughts i wanted to make here but i'm um i love it that that prompted those multiple thoughts and, and yeah of, so yeah yeah i'm experiencing something called thought thought tumbling right now which is um which is a phenomenon that uh, um, that happens where you have so many thoughts um, tumbling over one another. They're like uh, pieces of driftwood going over a cliff on, in a waterfall. Right. So I'm experiencing, yeah, I'm experiencing I can that. totally relate. And, and that, those that. wonderful moments, yet our own self-reflection is like, oh, I really ought to be saying something here. It's yeah being lost in my own thoughtmosphere and that's okay yeah so let's yeah so let's talk about this for a second what is consciousness i think consciousness is is self-awareness it's 
of its uh, awareness of your own awareness. So if you could imagine yourself hovering just above your brain, just above your head, you are the observer of your mind. You well, are. Isn't that a place that, that we can experience? I know for myself, and I'm sure you have too, there are those moments of observation where we actually do feel like we're several feet behind and or above. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know. And we, and we can stand in those magical moments, we can stand outside of ourselves and, um, you know, get that bigger, bigger picture of us in the context, in the moment. And then that's when we can make those great decisions. Here's one thing that I wanted, that one thing that I thought about uh, okay. a few minutes ago is that if we, if we are not in control of that faithful servant, our brain, um, and it's dragging us around from tree to tree or after the neighbor's cat, um, then we're probably- As long as it's not Schrodinger's. Schrodinger, right. But we're probably, <laughs> um being driven by our amygdala uh the three the um the reptilian the the 300 million year old oldest part of our brain the brain stem and the amygdala knows four things i call them the four f's and for civility i'll say that they are uh fight uh, fight flight food and fornicate those are the okay. four f's yeah, that the amygdala um, cares about. So, you know, and then you have your uh, prefrontal cortex, which developed about three million years ago, and then you have your um, um, your limbic brain, which developed about a hundred million years ago. Uh, that gave us connectedness and you know social uh, group connectedness and and started to develop em empathy mm -hmm. and then this three million year old part of our brain our prefrontal cortex has given us this um consciousness now i and, want to spin off on what you just said for just and a we're still bit. evolving absolutely and, and that's where i want to go with it the evolution wait, wait, well, let me make this one one quick point and okay. then i want to hear, hear what you said you, you want to say um uh we are just because 300 million years ago is the amygdala, 100 million years ago is the limbic, and 3 million years ago is the prefrontal cortex, it doesn't mean that we're now using the prefrontal cortex. All three parts of those brain are tapping in and informing us uh, daily. Right. And that they're available. Now, the, the They're available. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you still need them. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a grizzly bear charging you at the water cooler. You want your amygdala to, to tell you, um, you know, what, what to do about that. Absolutely. And, and it's a matter of the prioritization as to which area we need to use in any given when moment. and when. Yeah. 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 So the, on the evolutionary path, I've considered, you know, there's, there's all these philosophies about the missing link. Right. Mm. And if we look at nature, there's all kinds of mutation that take place and adaptation for specific reasons. And it's usually environmental, right? Sometimes it's physical in, in the adaptation in the new environment. So I wonder if we're not the same and that as those areas of the brain grew, we required a larger cranium in order to incorporate those 
And that's really what caused the evolution of the, the human form over time. And that because of that, we really, you know, there's still that missing link because we think there had to have been some other cause that, I mean, there's a lot of folks that say, yeah, it's a genetic mutation, the aliens came, right? I don't buy that <laughs> because everything happens naturally. Yes. You know, there's yeah. a natural order to everything. And that's really what the one mind holds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we don't inquire of the one mind with those kinds of questions. It's, you know, and I think that's part of what the emergence that's happening right now in what uh, a good friend of mine, Swami Beyond, Beyond the Nanda says, the great we set. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. The we set instead of reset. Right. Because yeah, I like the one. I like the one mind uh, idea. And uh, and I. I just got the notion of thinking of it in kind of a a Russian nesting doll um, uh, <laughs> format. That matryoshka is what they're called. What are they called? Matryoshka. Oh, matryoshka. Okay, so right. in a in a matryoshka kind of model, um, the one mind has to be considered or resolved at every level so the one mind with the individual you know the gut the brain and the heart and then the uh the amygdala and the limbic and the prefrontal cortex and then from a societal perspective um the one mind has to be considered and applied i'm asking what ifs here i'm i'm rolling out a theory in real time Sure. But if it has to be, this is what's called then a generative your neighbor. Yeah, so you resolve it with your neighbor. Though the what you apply the one mind, and then you resolve it with your community, and then you resolve it with your organization, and your county, and your nation, and the world. Um, and this eliminates a lot of the fear that's taking place because when there's a discussion of the one mind, one religion, one world government, anything like that there's this natural fear of losing independence, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And yet, from the place we're speaking of, there's an acquiescence to interdependence, right? It doesn't change the division of labor, right? Because everything still needs to be in place and functioning. It's just the attitude of which we participate in that functioning. Yeah. Where do you think we achieved independence as, as individuals? Where do you think independence lies? I, independence, rely, right, easy for me to say, lies in our ability of choice. Now, yeah, and I think it lies in the mind. Independence. Well, that's where choice occurs, right? It's yeah. how we think. And what we choose and, and the bouncing back and forth between the right and left hemispheres and trying to find that natural order that harmonizes mm -hmm. our experience. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really the aspect of quantum entanglement where uh, that we're able to live in that place in a natural order by choice, even though there's the, that ambiguity stage we're in right now of not really understanding what that really means, just through the scientific exploration and, and um, proofs that have taken place, that that's the reality, 
right? Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily have a, a cognitive um, direct experience of it yet. And still, it's funny I, that there's a combination of faith, love, and trust that's included, right? But it goes beyond religion. It, it's not faith, love, and trust in any religion or God or, or, or anything like that. It's the faith, love, and trust in ourselves that we can ask the right questions and acquiesce to the answers that come and not argue with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, right. so, so I think that we're starting to um, draw out some universal truths or some universal applications here. Uh, that humanity can benefit one uh, from. One being the suspension of judgment, two being the management of the mind and, um, you know, walking through uh, life in the, the best way possible for not only for, for ourselves, for others. And um, so... I think that at least those are two of those universal truths that can help us ascend um, on, say, David Hawkins scale as a right. species. Right. I love that uh, word, uh, the ascension. And ultimately, we ascend at the speed of surrender. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, once we let things go, uh, that um, that releases energy that's been used holding on to that, and um, and it opens up the creative, innovative pathways of the mind. Um, you know, get uh, wrestling things out of the amygdala uh, control center and giving it to the prefrontal cortex. Right. I mean, how how often do we really, really today in the world, um, you know, most of us that are that are fortunate to live in in countries that are not undergoing uh, war and strife and, mm -hmm. and famine, um, do we need to use those four Fs, those survival skills? Um, but how often do they weigh in in our day-to-day -day life and we're not even aware of it right a couple of comments that, and hopefully there will be a question that comes out of this is mm -hmm. one is that from the the movement in that and, and the learning how to be comfortable with ambiguity because that's kind of the place that we're in when when we start shifting from one place to the other and the ambiguity often uh, on a physical level um, I experienced this, and, and you may, and I, I know others do, is there's this feeling of being loose, right? Of not quite being in your body, and, and it leaves one with a sense of uh, what's going on, mm. right? Now, in relationship to that multidimensional aspect and the, the movement, the, the other planes of consciousness, if you will, that are able and, and that now we're capable of integrating those with the direct experience how have you explored that notion and the reflection of it in your direct experience on a sensory 
level, not necessarily how you think about it, but what is your direct experience of that that others might be able to reflect and understand on or with. Can you say that again, Zen? Can can sure can you say it in a in a simpler yeah I, I, in my simple mind can okay. So in the understanding of ambiguity and the yeah. um, the openness to it and vulnerability to it, what is your physical, the visceral experience of that? Because it, it seems to be of a different sort than our normal feeling, you know, completely concrete on, on a daily basis and, and present in a physical body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So ambiguity is very unsettling. It's, um, it causes anxiety. It, um, unless you have a plan for managing ambiguity, it can cause a great deal of stress. Um, but I think that ambiguity is, is a natural, even wonderful thing because it leaves the landscape open for for possibilities um, for, for exploration for exploration <laughs> right and not everything has to be uh locked down um closed put in a box so so let's look at the anxiety for just a moment yeah um, that's a sensation right that that's right. a feeling right yeah yeah. Now, is it possible that that same feeling that we interpret as anxiety could be that ambiguity becoming present that has a burgeoning possibility in it? And maybe from an anticipatory state where your body is like, okay, something new is happening. Yeah, right. yeah. I will. I really like. I really like an idea that you, or a feeling that I got when you started to talk about it, and that is the idea that perhaps ambiguity is is opportunity, or it's or it's pregnant for opportunity. Precisely. So the way that we process, you know, really, uh, they say that life is not what happens to you it's how you what you do with what happens to you how you process that what what you do next right um, it builds character it builds and sometimes builds. we can be quite the character right right, right. <laughs> and um so so if you can learn to get comfortable with ambiguity um i think that magical things will will happen for you and mm -hmm. if you also apply that that rule of suspending judgment until a decision has to be made um you know ambiguity is probably part of the uh judgment that you want to make um maybe you're uncomfortable with it you want to resolve it you're anxious about it or you're you know pre written tapes that were written 
long ago in your subconscious want see this thing as a threat and you want to resolve it you want to lock it down um but if you suspended that ambiguity might bring a great fortune revolutionary idea innovation well in the the process of um developing the understanding of one's spiritual path so to speak and and this kind of goes out it's ubiquitous through all the ancient spiritual teachings and that is the suspension of belief systems yeah yeah so let's take that word i think that word spiritual unfortunately is a very can be a very loaded charged you know yeah it can be a very loaded word in a religious context but but I like to think of spiritual in a in a consciousness. So, well, to me, uh, it means the interconnectedness of everything. Yeah, yeah, and and everything is interconnected. I mean, we're on a right. self-contained marble here, um, everyone together. Um. So, yeah. So the. So the spiritual connectedness, the um, conscious connectedness of all things, I really like that. You know, um, let's see, neuroscientist Rudy Tanzi says that, um, that human consciousness is, uh, is awareness of your own awareness. So self-awareness, you're aware that you're aware. And then suddenly you're standing outside of yourself looking at things. Mm -hmm. um, and he says that anything that you pull into your awareness um, now becomes part of your reality. And or, part of, or from a quantum physics standpoint, or uh, particles of your reality. Particles you're no longer reality. waving yeah, to them as they pass by. You're actually engaging yeah. them through your attention. It's interesting that yeah. So let so let uh, one more thought I wanted to make sure. here. He, he says that um, um, he sort of alludes to that you have to be careful because he says anything that you pull into your self awareness and anything that you create, the brain is a creation machine we create words we create facial expressions we create work of arts works of art we create musical passages we create situations but he says anything that you create will ultimately come back to regulate govern and monitor you so That's whatever we, consciousness yeah whatever we pull into our awareness um, will ultimately come back to regulate, monitor, and govern us. So then that would necessitate or suggest that we should be careful about what we pull into our consciousness, the reality that we create. And it also suggests we are co-creators. We are co, absolutely, I think we are co-creators. And that happens at an individual level at a um at a family level a societal mm -hmm. level and organizational level we are culpable in everything starting with 
us. Yep, yep. Now, what's interesting too is, is here's a, another reference that kind of says the same thing, and only it comes from off-planet resources. There's a guy named Wilbert Smith that was Canada's UFO chief investigator in the 1950s, and the Ministry of Transportation funded the program. So this was a legitimate program in the Canadian government at one point. Wilbert was a respected scientist. He had conversations with what he called people from elsewhere. And as with, I like that people from elsewhere. It, yeah, it, it, it's a much better term than any I've heard so far. Yeah, uh, and because they, they are just others like us, only they're different forms. So uh, diversity, right? Expressed uh, only on a universal scale. These people from elsewhere explained to him a few tasty tidbits from their point of view about humanity. One being that our awareness is tied to our reality and that ultimately it's what our awareness, uh, our awareness creates reality. And yeah, it's a giant feedback loop. It's, right. a, it's right. awareness, aware of awareness and the things that we pull in. Um, yeah. Now, the, one of the other things we're familiar with the term the void and we believe that that's from which where all things come, right? Um, the, their point of view is that we don't understand nothingness. And for that very reason, that it's where everything manifests from. It's the unqualified absolute, if you will, to use your Rancho book term, that we, through our awareness, bring into form, fit, and function. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Right? And their concept... Yeah. And one last thing on that is their idea of time is actually the measurement in the change of entropy. Now, when you think about mm. that from a place of being in harmony. Say that again. Time is a measurement in the change of entropy. Okay. Yeah. And we think that, you know, entropy means that all systems decay. That's not right. necessarily the case, right? There's a flip side to that. All things are also coming together. It's just our perspective of it. Right, right. And where we sit in the theater. Correct. And, and so the truncated time frames are possible when more are aligned toward a particular notion right and especially one of harmony learning how to get along with each other on a planetary scale right as that process is, process increases or, or develops then the time frame for it to actually happen truncates because of the attention intention and interaction yeah on it yeah i'm all i'm always taken back by the notion that the time is a is a human concept, mm -hmm. um, meaning the the order ordering of things, whereas space is the placement of things. Right. Um, but time is to the universe. Um, you know, we don't understand time from a universal perspective. If the we, universe, we understand it from big, the, from our rotation of the planet, and that's it. Yeah. If the universe is some big clock clock ticking away with its clockwork we in our finite bodies that we uh currently 
uh, habitate, we don't understand um, the idea of time from a universal perspective. We just apply it because it's helpful to us. Right. But, um, you know, I'll, I, I'll give you a, an example of this. Um, we put our intention towards something, something that we want, something that we want to happen. And when we do that, we also apply either consciously or unconsciously a, um, a time limit on it. Uh, you know, I want well, this there's to a call happen. and response aspect yeah. of it too. I want, right. I want this to happen right now, or I want this to happen tomorrow, or I'm going to be X by next year. Um, that is very arbitrary. Um, and over and over again, <laughs> the universe may actually answer our intention but it's not on our time scale. It oh, might no, be not years. at all. Yeah, it might be five years later. It might show up um, in a different form. It will definitely show up not on your time, but on its time. And um, precisely. And we refuse to see those things because they don't fit our filters that it causes anxiety. I didn't have a choice in seeing those things. As a teenager, you're aware of the transformative experience I had. Um, loosely, it could be framed in a near-death experience. But in that mm -hmm. process, my quest was to know truth. And my marching orders, when I was out of body, surrounded by points of light, were that I'm supposed to work with these points of light somehow in order to facilitate a new world order in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that one of the the other and this was a really truncated you know expression of the succinctness of what my life would entail and one of the specifics was everything will be there at its appointed time it's appointed time yeah right and if you can help it along at all it would probably be by forgetting about it launch launch the boat at the shore and then move on to something else. Well, this goes back it, into that concept. It's going to go into your subconscious. It's not, yeah. Sure. Um, and there are so many things and aspects that, that are involved in that, but it goes back into that uh, truncation of time frame because of how we allow things and anticipate their arrival. So there's right. a couple and, of questions. And, and different time scales, different things have different time scales. If we're, if we're talking about uh, the fall and rise of, of civilizations, it might be centuries. If we're talking about fashion trends, it's seasonal. If we're talking about glaciers moving, it's eons. Right. If we're talking about the universe, none of us know. Right. And if we bring it down into that practical, and, and here's the fractal of that on a practical and pragmatic level in project management, Right. You and I both have had experience with that. Yes. Right. Um, I just did a recent partnering workshop for elevating a four mile section of I-29 up near Fargo, North Dakota. Wow. Uh, how fun. Yeah, it, it, they really are, because I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of left brain people and being mm -hmm. able to express things from a right brain perspective in order to get them to acquiesce to the flow of the project. Now, how would you, right, so how would you um, 
keep them, how would you help them find that exploitation exploration balance? How would you keep them from going too far over on the exploitive side, trying to force things, trying to, you know, willfully make them happen? Right. Well, the first thing is, is understanding the schedule, right? And it's both contiguous and uh, what's the other word? Um, uh, I think contiguous, it's stacked, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah, there's yeah. multiple things happening simultaneously. And this is a three-year project, but there's multiple things happening simultaneously that they all have to be aware of. Different people are doing them, but it all fits into this uh, unitive schedule, if you will. Right. Now, the, the first thing that I express in, in explaining the partnering principles is that it's contingent upon uh, commitment, communication, integrity, and trust. And that's not only in the job, that's with each other and how that's established is through open communication. Every voice, voice needs to be heard, all that yeah. kind of stuff. I love that. And that's aligned with what I call job archy. Okay, we're familiar with oligarchy, hierarchy, monarchy, all those kinds of things. But John Ar job archy is the same application, right? The job is the boss. Mm, yes. Right. And right. so you align everything you are, then there's no ego without we go, because mm -hmm. everybody has a an important role, whatever it may be, in that process. And any one of those roles falls out of kilter, then you're talking downtime on the job, and that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. Right. Right. So being able to bring that into, and one of the methods I use is, is we create this uh, charter, right? And, and so it's about a, the team charter of how they're going to work together and the, the goals and objectives that they have. The goals are in six to seven different areas. The objectives are converted into metrics to measure the flow of the project that right. happens every you know, two weeks or monthly in their production meetings. And then the, I print that out. And I have everybody sign it. Oh. Right? Now, I know powerful. you get that reason, right? Yeah. And so sure. literally now, they are all on the same page. Mm -hmm. the, prior to that charter, they create a code of ethics, which is how they're, they're agreeing to behave toward each other. And so right. in this right. process, there's this natural willingness and vulnerability to be your best, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And nothing short of that is demanded. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. yeah, so all of those things, those ritualistic actions um, are, are, mind, are mind settling. Right. And they, and they free up energy to then apply creativity to the project, to apply patience, to manage anxiety and discomfort, ambiguity, deal with ambiguity. Um, those things, I would think, satisfy uh, the older, deeper parts of the brain so that you can get to the business at hand. Right. Um, and it satisfies the old school guys that think yeah. they just have to push through everything in order to get the job done. Yeah, they, 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 yeah that they have to push through things and, and that they force, you know, they just they just force 
uh, force things out of the universe, right. which never works out well. No, I, I was told, uh, and I've had um, a lifetime of, of experiences with other worlds and other beings. And, and one of the things that has been uh, specifically related is there is no push or pull. There's only flow. Mm. Yeah. And it, Right. And that goes back to the perfected form, fit and function. That's where your perfect flow is. But you got to get rid of all the distractions away. Uh, speaking of distraction, there was a we had this really interesting. My wife and I were in Tulum and uh, we were going from Tulum to Chichen Itza one day and mm -hmm. driving, yeah. driving through the jungle. There's a, an opening and there's this all acre and a half, both sides of the road. And in on one side of it, there's two signs that are butted up against each other at 90 degree angles so that you can see it coming from both directions. One sign says, in English, observe your intentions. And the other one says, observe your distractions. Oh. Hmm. Now, we've been talking about self-awareness the entire morning. So what a gift. Right. right. And, it, and yet it had been there for how many decades? I don't know. And, and being in English, somebody was thoughtful. Right. And yet there it was for that perfect moment. So there was synchronicity, there was serendipity, and there was pre-planning. Right. 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 So we were completely oblivious of that showed up in the moment that was perfect for us. Yeah. Yeah. So I love the um, I love the explanation of how you um, help the project and manage that project, and and it's kind of a um, it kind of employs a begin with the end in mind uh, kind of attitude and being and, extremely comfortable with ambiguity. Yeah, yep. Because I have no idea what's going to happen in the conversation. I just know the direction it needs to go. Yeah, and you don't, and you don't need to um, control it. First of all, right? You don't need to control it. Well, to some degree, I, I need to control the time frame, right? Because it yeah. has to get done. We can't, you know, belabor the points. But that yeah, yeah. structure. Yeah, but it's impossible to um, to manage it and lock it down one hundred percent prior to it unfolding. Like oh, absolutely Mike says, how do I know what I think until I see what I've said? Um, the, and, and you don't need to do that and you don't want to do that. No, but when I first started, I thought that was one of the things that I needed to do. Right. Right. Because right? I hadn't no. had direct experience yeah. of it yet. Yeah. Like, uh, like, um, the Prussian general Helmut von Moltke said, no battle plan survives engagement with the enemy. Um, so you make up a plan. And then you plan to crumble it up and throw it away. You know, you execute a scaffolding, a structure, and you add to it and you crumple it up and you rewrite it. Um, boxer Mike Tyson uh, upgraded Von Mulkey's uh, saying in the 1980s when he said, everyone's got a plan until they get hit. Right. Yeah. Which is the same kind of thing. You make a plan with the intention of balling it up and throwing it in the wastebasket. Now, speaking of hits, let's look at that from a different perspective in that the hits that you get 
are the impressions of, of what your distractions are. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That, right. And they, you know, they let's replace the word hits with gifts. Absolutely. Again, the paradox of truth. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. It, it's just, it's an amazing thing. Now, um, to bring it back to mm -hmm. the discussion of your book and, and the practical and pragmatic um, challenges and, and um, possibilities, coagulation <laughs> in, in the understanding, right? Um, so tell me a little bit about that, what you mean in the, the aspect of Shangri-La and, and uh, which, according to your book, includes a worldview, Stoicism, Christianity, humanism, postmodernism, pragmatism, uh, contemporary humanism, and, and the ultimate ambidexterity. <laughs> right. It's, um, you know, I think that both heaven and hell are here on this planet right now. Um, and in kind of a, you know, Bruce Lipton sort of thinking. Um, I totally you, agree. You never have to get out of the honeymoon phase um, if you can uh, use your, um, if you can manage your subconscious mind and, and you know, exploit it in proper ways and, and clean it out and use it. And you can also um, uh, utilize your conscious mind properly um, and live more in your your conscious mind uh, that you can have that that honeymoon feeling um, and that heaven on earth kind of um, life mm -hmm. um, it's all it, it it is all up to us to it create is. Like, is. we can create that Shangri-La and but it takes a little bit of uh, work, you know, hard oh, work. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. So that's what I meant by understanding uh, the worldview of your, um, not only you, but your employer and uh, how you want to see the world, you know, uh, of angels or demons. Albert Einstein said, we have but one important decision to make in life. That is, do we live in a hostile or friendly universe? That's all important, and, and that goes back to that choice, right, that I spoke right. of earlier. And that's what you end up seeing, either a hostile or friendly universe, depending on where that choice is, because there's, there's still some gray area, right? Because I don't know that we ever completely make that choice. Some do. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. There are ambiguity. probability scale. There will always be ambiguity. Right, right. And, you know, the gentleman I mentioned earlier with the great We Set, Swami Beyond Ananda, his name is Steve Berman. He actually co-wrote the Spontaneous Evolution with Bruce. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, he was the cosmic comedian that entered in here and there with Bruce's wisdom. And, and of course, Steve's got his own wisdom from 35 plus years of doing the, the New Age comedy scene. and, and which he's able to draw out those distractions we have, right? And make fun of them. 
because when you yeah. when you step back and look at them, they're really pretty silly, right? Yeah. Um, and yet we are so attached to them. Oh, we can't look silly. We can't look uninformed. We can't appear to be stupid, right? It, <laughs> right. And that's okay. One of the things that, that my success in the aerospace industry and in production control, um, I was in charge of $7 million a month in shipments. Brand new to it, I acknowledged my newness and that, hey, I'm new. I don't know. I, I'm feeling kind of dumb here. Can you help me? Yeah. Right. And, and that opens the door for others to share what they know because most people and most people want to do that. Yeah, people want to be helpful. It's one yeah. of the greatest. It's one of the greatest joys in life we have is to be helpful to another person. And uh, it's been scientifically proven that you will get um, endorphins released in your brain by watching others in a kind act. Yeah, you wit you witness an act of kindness, and you get neurochemicals released into your brain so and speaking of neurochemicals being re released into your brain I, I really think that we have done that with each other so i can imagine what our yeah. audience has been able to to do uh, in, in exploring their own thought atmosphere with our conversation and yeah i hope so and maybe maybe this necessitates a part two down the road I, I would love that. And, or maybe some ancillary activity that, yeah. that can include the, the interaction. So I really appreciate your, your time and your energy and your thoughtfulness and, and the depth of which you've explored, your, explored and exploded your own reality as a result of what you've chosen to do. Yeah, thank you, Zen. It's been a wonderful talk. Uh, here's the book. The Rise of the Ambidextrous Organization. And it's not just a blueprint for creating a better workplace and a Shangri-La at work, but also uh, creating a better life. Yeah, absolutely. And that will be featured in the description underneath the video. Um, so the audience, if you just look down below, there'll be a link for you to, to grab it and apply it in your lives. Yeah, and I'm, and, and I'm always available to have uh, conversations about this and about any of these topics. I learned so much from talking to great people like you and thank you. I, and, and ditto, I, I mean, that's the, the sharing from the place of ambiguity, right? Not knowing where we're gonna go and just going. Because Nobody knows how to do something when they first think of it. Yeah. And you yeah, know, manifesting. Yeah, manifesting something into reality begins with thinking about it and then talking to others. That's a perfect uh, a piece of advice for our audience to take with them, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks again, Eric. And namaste and in la catch. Thank you for watching this episode of One World in a New World. I'm Zen Benefiel, your host, and I'll see you next time.